Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, November the 6th, 2022, a quiet Sunday in San Francisco before the storm breaks early next week with the midterms. We've been doing a number of shows on the future of publishing, appropriate for a book show. Lots of shows about whether Substack uh, offers an alternative form of publishing. Uh, earlier last week, we did a show with RJ Reynolds about his new kind of publishing, focusing uh, on data. Of course, the publishing business is very much in the news. Uh, last week, there was a uh, announcement of, of a judge blocking the merger of uh, Penguin Random House and Simon and & Schuster. We're going to do some shows on that in the next couple of weeks, too. Uh, the news of the death, sad death of Julie Powell um, reminds us of the way in which many writers have begun their careers as bloggers. She took on Julia Child. Uh, and there are lots of other aspiring, innovative quite radical indeed disruptive writers who are changing the publishing industry. The New York Times did a piece on Colleen Hoover recently, quite remarkable story. She holds or at least held uh, a week or two ago, six of the top 10 spots on the New York Times paperback fiction list. She began as a self-published author and my guest today might not be quite Colleen Hoover, but is equally disruptive and colorful. Um, Travis Baldry uh, is best known, or at least was best known before 2022, as a, a prolific uh, reader of audiobooks. Uh, some of you may be familiar with some of his work. Uh, but at the beginning of 2022, he self-published a book uh, called Legends and Lattes. And uh, this year, it's become a huge success. It's got almost 8,000 reviews on Amazon, which is quite an achievement. Uh, and this month it's being republished with some extra stuff uh, uh, on tour, uh, which is a Macmillan-owned print, uh, a Macmillan-owned imprint. Um, Travis is joining us from Spokane, Washington. Uh, Spokane, Washington, Travis. As I joked at the beginning, I ought to be careful with my pronunciation with a, <laughs> an audio master like you. So, Tell me the story of Legends and Lattes. Were you trying to disrupt the business or were you just having fun? I was definitely just having fun. Um, I originally wrote Legends and Lattes as a national novel writing book. Um, it's National Novel Writing Month right now. Uh, last November, I wrote it uh, in about 27 days, something like that. And uh, well, you're going to save 27 minutes, which would put all of us to oof. Well, that would be impressive. I think we have to wait for AI to take over for that. Uh, um, but I work with a lot of independent authors and small press authors that self-publish and several of them are quite successful at it. And I'm just curious about new things. I wanted to see what they go through to publish. And I thought, I have this book, I might as well do it. And if I can convince enough friends and family to buy copies so that I can pay for my cover art, then, you know, all to the better. And well, then it went yeah, very it differently. Took you 27 days. So you didn't have an editor. You what yourself edited? 
Um, I did an initial self-edit, but then actually, because I work with uh, authors, I, I did a barter with an author who was also an editor. And I went through a full, effectively professional edit in the month of December before releasing it in February. So I, I tried to do it as professionally as possible um, with the resources that were available to me. And then when did you realize it was actually taking off? When did you realize it was a viral hit? Was it because of um, TikTok? Or, or book talk as it's called i it was i think due to a lot of social aspects so initially i got an inkling when i just posted the cover art and sean and mcguire retweeted it and it was really well received so the, the concept initially landed really well the cover art worked well people got the gist of the book and were interested in it which then made me think, well, gosh, I hope I haven't screwed up the book because <laughs> if it doesn't follow through, then nobody's going to care. Um, but then as I started doing some beta reading in the run-up to the release and getting arcs out there, the response was also good. Um, and they weren't people that were my friends and acquaintances. So I thought, well, maybe if people liked the concept that much, they might actually like the book when it comes out because it seems like it's it's going okay. Um and then I put it up live for a pre-order, and the pre-order did very, very well, which was also kind of an indicator what that it that was going mean, to be very, fine. very well? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm trying to remember how many pre-orders I sold. It was, uh, I feel like it was, uh, you know what? I can probably even tell you. Um, it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of copies on the first day. Let's see. Can I get it? Nah, I'm not going to waste your time. Well, anyway, um, I mean, it, it, anyway, <laughs> did, did you have, um, did you have, or do you have your own quite extensive network? You said you initially told friends and family, but do you have a network because of your audio work or because of your friendship with a lot of writers and publishers and, and, and creatives? Um, I don't know if, any of my acquaintances or my audiobook work had much intersection. I'm sure there was some because if people know you and then then they may check out your work. But from the response I got from the book, it's not the normal genres that I narrate. So there's actually not a ton of overlap. I normally uh, narrate like action adventure stuff. Um, yeah, and the book uh, itself is a kind of reaction to that. It, it's, it's very different than that. It's it's more of a, it's like a cozy fantasy with romance elements, and that's not normally the kind of work that comes my way, which was part of the appeal for me because I like that kind of fiction. I like a variety of things, but as a narrator, you tend to get typecast because people come to you to narrate styles of books that you have narrated before that have done well, so you get a lot of very similar work. And then when did you realize you actually had a viral hit? Um, after release, it continued to proliferate and I started getting fan art and pictures of tattoos and people built dioramas. And I think that's probably when I knew when people started sending things to me because the book meant something to them and they responded well to it. Um, and I, I, I don't feel like I can, I can take any credit for that any of the virality or any of the social media side of things. I think mostly that's people picking up and running with it because they liked the book. Um, but uh, that was definitely, I think, when I started to get an inkling. Twitter, you know, um, I was going to call you Twitter, Travis. Uh, Travis, you don't need to tell me that Twitter is very much in the news mm -hmm. this week and <laughs> Elon Musk's behavior. 
someone on Twitter this morning writing, here's a thought, platforms are over. Uh, Stephen King has got in a big fight with uh, Elon Musk, not the only one, about the value of this blue check. Did you um, use Twitter? Do you think it's a valuable platform for authors? For me, it's been valuable. It's probably where I interact with people the most, um, largely because you can have a threaded conversation that you can track. Um, I think TikTok and uh, Facebook and Instagram all have their place and their audiences, but to have like an ongoing dialogue with someone that lasts for more than just the instant of interacting with the video or picture or whatever, there's nothing quite like Twitter. Um, so I tend to post, I, I post art. I most, for the most part, I'm just being a human being on it. And it's a place to interact with people that I want to interact with, but, um, it's probably where I actually spend most of my social media time. What are your feelings about Musk and this whole blue tick? Well, the blue tick thing seems odd to me because the whole point of the blue tick was to um, to prevent people from having their identity from being impersonated. Um, it wasn't intended to be a status symbol as far as I know. And if it's something that you can buy, it sort of loses its purpose, its initial purpose, which was to you know protect people from being impersonated. And if you can just pay to have a blue check, then... It, it it feels like it's trying to it's trying to sell the secondary identity of the blue check that people ascribed to it rather than the actual identity of the blue check so it's a little weird to me how much were you selling the book for was it was it uh you had a, a physical book i had a physical as well copy as, a, as well as a digital one and, and were you doing orders on print how were you doing that um, so I did, I went through every avenue I could go through. So I did an ebook on Amazon, which I did at two ninety nine, which I think was the lowest price I could do and mm. do the 70% royalty. I also did Kindle Unlimited because my goal was just audience size. I just wanted, if you wanted, if you were interested in the book, I wanted to make sure you could get it. Um, yeah. I did Amazon KDP print, but I also did print through Ingram Spark so that it could actually go into bookstores. And I did it with the suggested discounts for print retailers and with the, uh, pulping and, with the pulping option so that they can they can refund it without shipping it um trying to make it something that a, a brick and mortar could actually order in and there's still a big barrier to that um mostly i did it on a lark i was just like i'd like to go down to my local bookstore and be able to ask them to order it and have them not laugh in my face um but it ended up being a lot more successful than that i think in print before tour took it over i sold about sixteen thousand copies in print and more than half of those were in brick and mortar bookstores. I think it was in almost every Barnes and Noble by the time Tor took over and we ended that print run. But largely, again, that's not so much due to me. It was due to booksellers and social media and them championing the book and hand selling it initially until it started to propagate. So what did you learn that you can pass on to aspiring self-published writers, perhaps who don't know their way around the business as well as you do? Um, well, I'm not sure if I know my way around the business, and I'm a little hesitant to ask advice because it feels like it's a lightning strike situation to a certain extent. It's like, it doesn't know that it doesn't feel like it's something that I could necessarily replicate. Um, but from, from the standpoint of what you can do, um, I think the things that, that made it work were, I said this to someone else, it's like I, I, uh, I just happened to stand under the right rain cloud and all I did was make sure that my bucket had no holes so that I could fill it with water. Um, 
so yeah, I made sure you're, that you're, you're um you're actually under the cloud or you're out. I mean, it's it's easy to poo-poo yourself, but clearly you're doing some things right. Well, I think I think that being professional about every aspect of it, so that if the lightning does strike, that you're ready is kind of the important thing. Um, so I made sure my book was well edited. I made sure I had a good professional cover that articulated well the concept and the vibe of the book so that yeah, if somebody was interested in it, they, they could, they, and, and the book is what's on the cover. So it's very careful about saying what the, the, uh, the idea of the book is it's high fantasy and low stakes. It's got a little bit of romance. It's not going to be an action adventure fantasy. And it has an appealing cover that gives you the idea of basically what it's about. And when you read it, that's what it is. So you aren't disappointed by being baited and switched into something you weren't after. Um, and uh, I think the book's reasonably good. It's, I mean, it's, it's not amateurish. Um, you learn a lot reading other people's books out loud. It's a really good way to <laughs> um, refine your sense of what works and doesn't work, at least for yourself in a book. Um, and I assume you, uh, you didn't charge yourself for doing the audiobook. I did not. And it was the cheapest audiobook I've ever done. Um, but it was also an easy one. Um, and, and normally I wouldn't advise an independent author to do the audiobook first. I would, I would say you want to wait and see whether you've got some initial traction and success with the ebook because there's not a really good way to push the audiobook. The audiobook sells if the book sells. So here's, and I'm sure everyone asks you the same question, Travis. You did all the hard stuff. You, you, you caught the lightning uh, and you showed up and you were ready for the lightning. So you made a success of it. Why go back into the traditional business? Why do a deal with Macmillan and Tor? Because now I get to do both. Um, I got to have a successful launch, which went for months and months and months and was, was very financially successful for, for, for a book launch, for an independent book launch. So now when I work with Tor, there's a couple of really great aspects of that. One, I can sell it to people who otherwise wouldn't get it. There will be, at this point, I think eight translations. There will be more on the way. I was never going to hire uh, a, uh, an international rights agent and figure out translations. So that's a whole thing that comes along with it that otherwise would never have happened. Um, it means that on the print, it could potentially be in airports. Um, it, it will be in places, even in English, that it wouldn't have been even with what I managed to accidentally pull off with Ingram Spark and print. Um, and it means that the next book, I can see what happens when they launch it from the beginning and I can compare those two things. It's kind of like a unique situation where I can compare and contrast between self-pub and traditional and say, wow, this was really great in self-pub and this was really great in traditional and here's why. And I don't think that's an opportunity that comes along that often and pretty interesting. Yeah, plus you get some money up front. Um, I do. What about the the importance of, of writing fast, Travis? You did it in 27 days, which is really short and quite an achievement. I'm not sure if you stayed up for 27 days, whether you slept at all. <laughs> but do you think it tells us something about, for, for, for people, aspiring writers, for people who want to self-publish, that they shouldn't obsess over their work, get it out, Maybe not do it in a month, but do it in two or three months. Write it out. And if it's any good, maybe it can do with a bit of editing, but it will sell. And there's no point in agonizing. I know people who spent years on their first novel. Uh, and it doesn't seem to me it's any better after the first year than after the fourth year. Yeah. 
I mean, I think it's important to take your time and make something that's quality, but there's like a point where it becomes diminishing returns where nobody but you is going to notice the difference. It's like sanding down a surface. You get to a point where unless you're running your fingers along it, you can't tell that it's rough anymore. Um, and there's probably a lot more value past that point in writing something new and learning something new because it feels to me, I've written two now. I wrote the, I wrote the second one and sent it in, um, that you learn a lot more in the initial act of writing and getting the story done than you do past a certain point in the editing process. There's plenty to, plenty to learn in the edit, but once you start getting off into the, the fiddly little things, it's, it's more mechanical and less, uh, big advances in your knowledge. One of the encouraging things about what you're doing and, and other authors like you, particularly having your success on BookTok, is you're bringing in young readers. I mean, it seems to be an industry publishing dominated by older people, both perhaps as readers and also um, managing the industry. Have you seen that? Um, did you Do you think that the sales you've achieved on TikTok through Twitter and other social media platforms, is that generating younger readers willing to pay for their content? I'm honestly not sure because I don't know if I have a basis for comparison. Um, so I'm in my mid forties. Um, and my impression, and, and I'm just going by the way people look and act is that a lot of them are thirties, thirties and forties. They're, 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 there's certainly some people, there's certainly people who are younger than and that are in their twenties, but, um, there's a lot of people my age on social media. I, I guess that depends on what our, what our definition of older and younger is. I'm starting to feel pretty old in my mid forties. Right, but... You're young to me, but everyone's <laughs> young to me. Right. Um, so it, it's certainly, um, it's certainly a way for things to like be immediately translated to people who have similar interests because people tend to follow each other if they have similar interests so it's kind of like um it's kind of like little little sparks that go out in the grass and then start separate little forest fires you can almost see it happen in the sales with social media uh it's it's but I, but i don't know i don't know if i have enough data to say that it's it's somehow skewing younger than other avenues you're a, a tech wizard uh, people can tell from the setup if you're watching um you have your own uh, products, uh, Adobe Edition on your website, a, a, a way around or a, an addition to, to the Adobe, the Adobe uh, literary stuff, uh, the tech. Um, I wonder what you think about the metaverse. We've done a number of shows <laughs> on it. Uh, your book looks as if it would sit well on the metaverse. Do you think that the metaverse might actually benefit fantasy writers like yourself and fantasy readers so i'm i'm probably pretty skeptical on a metaverse i'm actually i'm 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 actually a software engineer i built software and video games for 20 years so i have a history in that or at least very tangential to that to that idea um i think people really like the idea of the metaverse but i think the practicality of it is not there I think that the cumber we are we are addicted to convenience, and the metaverse is not going to be convenient. Um, strapping something to your face and stumbling around, if you happen to have a room big enough to do it, and interacting with things that you could trivially do another way, is just it doesn't feel like something that's that's going to be other than a money sink for maybe a really long time. Maybe there's a point in the future where the technology is so um, unobtrusive, and you've got you're not putting stuff on to do this 
Yeah. But it's it's hard for me to imagine. People have been trying this in various ways for a really long time, and it usually follows the same trajectory. It's a neat idea, and people dump a bunch of money into it, and a small number of people, people try it out, and then they never want to try it again. Um, it was like my kids with VR. They wanted, they were big Minecraft players, and I set them up with a VR headset, and they played Minecraft and VR one time, but it was so cumbersome that they would just rather sit at their computer and play it. It's really interesting. So words are sufficient to imagine fantasy, Travis, what you're saying. I mean, I think your, so. your work is fantastic. It's certainly anything but realistic. Um, but we don't need, you're suggesting, the metaverse. We don't need to put on fancy goggles to imagine your fantastic world. I don't think so. And I think it, for the same reason that audiobooks are increasing in popularity so much, there's the spoken word is really powerful. Um, the written word is really powerful, and people still respond to them um, despite all the technology we've got. Um, and in a lot of ways, there are things we can we can consume and enjoy while we're doing other stuff. There's something really powerful about being able to vacuum your house while you get a story, you know, which, again, you can't do with a metaverse. Well, you can probably imaginary vacuum. Yeah. You can imaginary vacuum. And I am sure someone's made a game to do that. <laughs> How has this changed your career? I mean, it's still, would you still describe your audiobook reading as your day job? I mean, you say you're a software engineer. Yeah. Um, how has it affected this success of Legends and Lattes? How has it affected your career and your attitude towards audiobooks, uh, reading other people's work? So I still love reading other people's work because in a lot of it's a lot more, it's a lot less effort than writing a book because I'm just coming in to put a little bit of frosting on the cake, you know. That's that's already been baked, um, and you know I can complete an audio book, you know, in half a week. That's it's it's very rewarding. Um, and I enjoy it a lot and it's still effectively my job. I'm, and, and I've got so much on, I have books scheduled to 2026, so I'm going to be an audiobook narrator for the foreseeable That's future. That's right. So, so you, you're just on a contract, you just get paid X to read a book. Is that how it works? Um, it's usually paid on a finished hour rate and it varies from book to book. And I try not to up my rates for ongoing series so that I don't stick it to authors that I've been, I'm narrating the 12th book for, but, um, it's just, uh. I, I get them on the schedule, I get them racked up, and, and I roll through. I do about usually 70 to 80 books a year, more wow. or less. And so, so I assume, I mean, that's one every three days or four days. It's about six to seven a month. I mean, I mean it varies based on length. You can have a six-hour book or a 24-hour book, so it depends. I think that's about, I feel like it's about 800 hours a year, roughly, of audio um, I'm narrating pretty constantly and for writing, I've, I've done that in the evening. So the two books that I've written have been after my normal business hours, I write them in the evening. Um, this actually, this, this audio booth that I'm in is great for writing in because nobody can bug you and there's no snacks and there's nothing to distract right. you. So I sit in here in isolation to it's get my chapters done. from your kids, right? Yeah. How did you start in the audio book business how did you learn that you could narrate books and and how do you do you when, when you get a script um the the uh, the text do you i assume you read it first how much time do you spend with the text before you actually narrate it okay well to answer the first question i did audiobook narration on the side for two or three years before i started doing it professionally i did it while i was still a software engineer and i did it because i enjoyed it 
Um, my kids didn't need me to read out loud to them anymore. And I had some of the equipment for doing video recording for the games that I was building. And I thought, why don't I try this? Amazon has a service called ACX that works in conjunction with Audible so that authors and publishers can put up books for audition, narrators can audition for them, and it facilitates the ultimate publishing of the audio so that basically anybody can do it. Um, and I started doing that and I was pretty good at it and people kept asking me to do it. So there's a point where I just decided, you know, I like this more. I, book people are cool. I, I, I love doing this day in and day out and I switched. Um, as far as preparing for it, yes, you need to read the book, but the depth with which you read the book is debatable. There's a lot of narrators who uh, stand by the assertion that you need to deeply read the book and you need to take notes. And I'm not that way. I skim them. And I find the things that I need to know to narrate them. I need to know that somebody doesn't suddenly have an Irish accent on page 382 after I've been narrating them for the past eight hours. Um, I need to know how things are pronounced. Um, and I, there's, there's key elements of characterization that I need to dig out. But apart from that, that's really all I need. And so I extract that pretty quickly and get that set up. And I'm a pretty good cold reader, so that's the way that I work. Um, but every narrator is a little bit different, and it just depends on their process. I'm glad you publicly acknowledge you're a skimmer. I'm a skimmer, too. I talk to three or four authors a day. I can't read their books either. I can't read the whole I thing. <laughs> and since you've admitted to skimming, I've skimmed your book, too. Um, and the reviews are wonderful. One description said, a hot cup of fantasy slice of life with a dollop of romantic froth. Is that what? Is that a good way to sum up the book, Legends and Lattes, Travis? I think so. I think so. And I can't resist, since you're the audio guy and you're in your studio, maybe you can do us the honor of a short read. Have you got anything to hand? I didn't even tell you this beforehand. Would you well, be willing to let's see. Let's see. What can I read minute? on here? I can probably uh, read it. I can read you some of it. Uh, let's let me read us, uh, I mean, not too long, maybe two or three minutes of your favorite stuff. Sure, let me pull the something book. Remember, we want do we want people to buy the self-published one or the the Macmillan tour one? It's impossible to buy the self-published at this point. Tour you can okay. tour took it over. Macmillan so tour. This is you don't the... have to worry. <laughs> yeah. Well, Travis will still make some money. Let's so that's see here. Thing. It all works out. Uh, let's see here. I will pull this up. Um, easiest ways for me to email it to myself. Email it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I got a little. Uh, I've got a little iPad that I read off of here, um, and I just need to toss it on real quick, which I will do, and then uh, we will rock it. All and right. then we're gonna have a, a slice of life with a dollop of romantic froth, Ro just right for a Sunday morning, Travis. <laughs> um, let's see here. Come on. Do, 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 do. And you get a little soft shoe while I'm uh, while I'm digging it up. Yeah. Um, Here we go. go. Tra the great Travis Baldry reading from his <laughs> self-published, right, now traditionally published legend, All legend right. and lattes. Let's see. Here we go. Uh, there's a good point. There we go. All right. No matter what Laney said, Viv didn't really expect to find the much-maligned Ansem at this time of day. 
She figured she'd ask after him in any swill joint with an open door and, once she knew his haunts, track him down after the day wore on. Turned out she only needed three stops before she found him in residence. The tavern keep looked her up and down after she asked, raising his eyebrows pointedly at Black Blood's hilt over her shoulder. No trouble from me, just business, she said evenly. She tried to look less imposing. Apparently satisfied that she wasn't spoiling for a fight, he cocked a thumb at the corner and went back to swabbing the grime of the bar top into new and more interesting locations. As Viv approached the table, she got the overwhelming impression that she was entering the den of some elderly woodland beast, a badger, perhaps. Not a dangerous sense, but the feeling of a place where he spent so much time that it had absorbed his smell and become essentially his. He even looked like a badger, a big greasy black beard striped with white tangled across his chest. As wide as he was tall, he occupied so much space between the wall and table that when he inhaled deeply, the thing rocked up on its legs. You handsome? asked Viv. Handsome allowed that he was. Mind if I sit? she asked, and then sat anyway, leaning black blood against the back of the chair. Truth be told, she wasn't really accustomed to asking permission. Ansem stared at her over puffy lower lids, not hostile, but wary. A tankard sat before him, nearly empty. Viv caught the tavern keep's attention and gestured at it, and Ansem brightened considerably. Much obliged, he muttered. I hear you own the old livery on Redstone. That true? asked Viv. Ansem allowed that he did. I'm looking to buy, she said and I have a feeling you might be looking to sell. Ansem seemed surprised, but only briefly. His gaze sharpened, and while he might not have had a head for business, Viv was pretty sure he had one for haggling. Maybe, he rumbled. Well, that's some prime real estate. Prime! I've had offers before, but most of them don't see past the place to really appreciate the value of the location. That is to say, they underbid. At this point, the tavern keep swapped his tankard for a fresh one, and Ansem visibly warmed to his subject. Oh yes, so many embarrassing offers. I have to warn you, I know what that lot is worth, and I can't see myself selling to anyone but a serious businessman. Uh, businesswoman, he amended. Viv flashed her toothy and amused grin, thinking of Laney. Well, Ansem, there's all kinds of business. Very conscious of black blood leaning behind her, she thought of how easy her business, her old business, would have made this negotiation. But I can say for sure that when I do business of any kind, I'm always serious. She reached for her satchel, removed the purse of platinum chit, and hefted it. Withdrawing just one, she held it between thumb and forefinger, inspecting it and letting it catch the light. Platinum was a currency hardly ever seen in a place like this, and she'd need to exchange it for lower denominations soon, but she'd wanted some on hand for just this sort of moment. Ansem's eyes widened. Oh, ah, serious, yes, serious indeed. He took a long pull of his beer to cover his surprise. Sly dog, thought Viv, trying not to smirk. As one serious business person to another, I don't want to waste your time. Viv leaned on an elbow and slid eight platinum chits across the table. That's probably 80 gold sovereigns. I think that covers the value of the lot. I'm sure we can agree that the building is a loss, and I think the odds of another businesswoman tracking you down to pay cash on the barrel head is vanishing. She held his gaze. He still had the tankard to his mouth, 
but wasn't swallowing. Viv began to withdraw the chits, and he hurriedly reached out, pulling up short before touching her much larger hand. She raised her eyebrows. I can see you've got a keen eye for value. Ansem blinked rapidly. I do. If you want to take a moment this morning to bring the deed and sign it over, I'll wait here, but I won't wait longer than noon. Turned out the old badger was a lot nimbler than he looked. Great stuff, Travis. I have a new model for you. Maybe you should have video, too. Your face changes and your voice changes. Um, congratulations again on this wonderful achievement on lots of fronts. Uh, it's really a, a wonderful story, Legends and Lattes, the first of many, I hope. Well, you've, done, you've done another one already. Uh, what else? Do you have any time? You seem very busy. Do you have any other time for reading or listening to other people's audiobooks? What do you enjoy when you're not either writing or reading your own stuff? I still love to read. It's still one of my main hobbies, but I tend to read a lot of novellas because I can squeeze them in between books, and I really usually like that they have a really punchy idea that they explore fully and then they get out. Um, I read Nettle and Bone recently from T. Kingfisher, which I really enjoyed. Uh, Ring Shout, uh, Sisters of the Vast Black, which is a bunch, a bunch of Catholic nuns in space in a living spaceship. Um, I, I, I like to read genre widely um, and... Uh, yeah, it's, which is probably a good prerequisite to be somebody who read books out loud. Excellent. That was